0: Well, though it seems like a lifetime ago, it's actually not even quite a year ago that I was on the most recent MAF ride, the South Coast Dreaming Ride, where we were out riding to raise money for Mission Aviation Fellowship, and it was a very interesting part of Australia to ride in, the south coast of New South Wales, just below Sydney, around that Wollongong, Kiama kind of area. I'd never been there before. I wasn't familiar with the area but it was geographically quite uh, stunning in terms of the layout of the land. We were staying down on the beach and each day we would get on our kid, have our breakfast and then ride up into the hinterland. And there were occasions as we left the lowlands, as we left sea level, we would ride through the foothills and you would sort of look at some of the hills coming and wonder how were you going to overcome them. And then as you kind of got closer to the escarpment and there's some very spectacular escarpments around that area, just cliffs that rise up from the valleys, we'd be riding along and I'd be wondering because I was unfamiliar with the place, how are we ever going to get to the top of that? There was no obvious way the road seemed to go and it was a a, a hurdle of insurmountable proportions. And it was going to take something really, really significant, something quite astonishing to actually be able to go from the bottom to the top. And something astonishing did happen. Well, actually, two astonishing things happened. First of all, Years ago some very very clever civil engineers mapped out a way of uh, building a road from the bottom to the top and some of those passes like Jambaroo Pass or Macquarie Pass wind their way up the hills. That's the first astonishing thing that happened. The second astonishing thing happened that happened was that we actually who were looking at this massive uh, impenetrable barrier actually were able to ride our bikes from the bottom to the top and didn't die in the process. Uh, More likely to die in the process of coming down, actually, just between you and me. Much fun coming down, not much fun going up. Now, the book of Acts that we've been looking at over these past few months actually lays out before us the growth and expansion of the church. And in the same way as we looked at some of those barriers to getting to the top of the escarpment there were some barriers to the expansion of the gospel that the book of Acts describes being overcome. If you go back to Acts chapter 1 for instance chapter 1 verse 8 if you want to flick back there and have a look uh, you'll see in Acts chapter 1 Jesus promised his disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem very familiar with Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. But for that to happen there needed to be some significant barriers or hurdles overcome. We saw in chapter 2 through to chapter 5 the church in Jerusalem burst open and, and grew exponentially. And why was that? Well it was because of the faithful witness of the apostles and the disciples and the empowering of God's Spirit That just drew people to the church and the church exploded. But then, of course, there came persecution. Acts chapter 5, we see, uh, Acts chapter 6, rather, we see Stephen making the argument that this temple that was sacrosanct, this place of significant religious importance to the Jewish people, was no longer necessary for the worship of God. And there was persecution that broke out as a result of this shift in thinking and uh, we saw in chapter 8 how as a result of the persecution the gospel was actually carried over the next barrier, the barrier of how it was going to go to Samaria. And Philip went to Samaria and we heard that story. But there was still one massive barrier to overcome. And that is, how was the gospel going to go to the ends of the earth? Because the ends of the earth was the Gentile world. And to the Jewish mind, that was an enormous barrier. Because up to this point, the, Jewish, uh, the sorry the, the gospel, the Christian church, the, the way as the Christians were known, was very much a Jewish thing. It was very much populated by Jewish people. And as we know from the Gospels, from Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, there was a deeply entrenched uh, resistance or a deeply entrenched prejudice, that's the better word, between the Jew and the Gentile. And that had to be overcome before Gentiles could be fully welcomed into the family of God on equal terms with the Jews, before the church could truly become a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural one-bodied entity? And this question is such a big question, such a big issue. This issue was such an enormous barrier that if you have a look at Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11 verses 1 to 18, Luke who wrote these words actually recounts the story twice about how it was overcome. It's that important. Two times this story is told, for that reason I'm just going to look at chapter 10 this morning. But if you have a look at chapter 10 and chapter 11, the story is actually told twice to emphasise just how significant the overcoming of this barrier actually was. If we go back to the Old Testament, uh, it's actually worth noting that this division, this separation, this segregation between the Jew and the Gentile was never what God intended at the first place. It was not Part of God's original plan. If you go back into the Old Testament, you'll actually read oracles against the nations. Now, of course, there were nations that came up against Israel and fought against God's people, and there are words of prophecy, words of judgment against those nations. But the prophets also foretold a day when God's Messiah would inherit the nations, when all people would fall at the feet of the Messiah. The blessing of Abraham uh, started that off. In fact, it goes back even further to uh, to Genesis chapter 1 because God created all, and so all should be under his authority. But the blessing of Abraham reminds us that God is concerned for all nations, and that the Lord's servant would be the light for all nations, and that all nations would ultimately flow into the Lord's house. And that God would pour his Spirit out on all people. That's a significant statement in light of the book of Acts, where our concern is so very much focused on the activity and life of the Spirit of God. The tragedy was, though, that Israel had taken this doctrine of election that God had chosen them and had twisted it into favoritism and had so built a wall around themselves to the exclusion of others and had developed traditions and, uh, and laws which kept the Gentiles at arm's length that actually treated them like dogs or considered them to be on a par with dogs. And while we can explain that as a doctrinal issue, it's actually a sin issue and we need to name that because even in our day there's much discussion about the need and the place for reconciliation between races, different ethnic groups, different peoples and Christians should be at the forefront of that, we should be leading the way in that and I'll explain why as uh, as this message unfolds today. But a wise Indigenous friend of mine once said to me, David there will be No true reconciliation between people until there is true reconciliation between people and God. And I thought at the time that is very, very wise. We can work very hard at the interpersonal relationships, but ultimately we need to deal with sin. That's at the core of the prejudice and division that there is in our life and in our society. It's only when social justice and the gospel are properly married that real change can be anticipated. So we're going to turn to the text and what I'm going to do today is read uh, part of the passage and then just reflect on a couple of comments and then towards the end make some comments around the whole issue of prejudice and how we think about other people. So we're going to turn to the text, we'll see if we can bring that up for you at the bottom of the screen. Luke writes, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and god-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, "Cornelius." And Cornelius stared at him in fear and said, "What is it, Lord?" he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now, there's a couple of really interesting things going on in this passage. The first is the mention of Caesarea, red flag for some people in amongst the Jewish community because Caesarea was known disparagingly, kind of a, a nickname, if you like, as the daughter of Eden, Edom. Edom was a, a natural enemy of Israel. And because the Romans had made their administrative centre at Caesarea, uh, Herod the Great had rebuilt the city. He established a fine port there. Uh, this city had become a constant reminder of the Roman subjugation of the people the Romans rule over the people of Israel so Caesarea whoa not a place uh, Jewish people were all that excited about and Cornelius just to make things even more complicated was a Roman centurion the natural enemy of the Jew so to speak He was a member of the occupying forces. I use that language intentionally. That's what they were. And yet, here's a beautiful piece of God's grace at work. He was to become the instrument that God would use to achieve his purposes, to change the thinking in one of God's uh, messengers, Peter. Cornelius, we learnt there in that passage, was a devout man, one of many non-Jews who were attracted to the the monotheistic, the one God nature of Judaism. We're told in this passage that he prayed regularly, that he gave to the poor, that he exercised his faith in a practical way and yet we understand from this passage that was not enough to save him. And it's important to say that because there's an awful lot of people in our world today who believe that being pious or being devout or being good people is enough to get them to heaven. If that was the case, Peter would not have had to go to Cornelius because Cornelius would have been fine. This passage actually tells us that you need Christ. You need more than just being a good person. Our passage continues in verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat and while the meal was being prepared he fell into a trance he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners and it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds then a voice told him get up Peter kill and eat surely not Lord Peter replied I've never eaten anything impure or unclean the voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking, Simon who was known as, sorry, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision the spirit said to him Simon there are three men looking for you. So he got up and went downstairs do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men I'm the one you're looking for why have you come? The men replied we've come from Cornelius the centurion he is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people a holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Have you noticed how the activity of God in this passage starts in the lives of both Cornelius and Peter as they were worshipping? It's a rather interesting observation. It's no small thing that the activity of God that we see taking place in this passage begins in worship. The Gospel of Christ, which was to go out and be proclaimed to the whole world, about to overcome this great barrier, has its start, the, the overcoming at least of this great barrier has its start in worship. And in fact if you study Christian history you'll discover that any great mission activity that's ever been initiated in the life of the church, any great move outwards. In fact, any great movement of God's spirit to revival or restoration of of his people, any great move of God's people in the new mission has always started with worship. It's always started with people praying. It's always started with people on their knees. And at a personal level, if your walk with God has grown tired or your passion to do his will has grown dull, worship's a great place to start. And we should also notice in this passage the significance of Peter who was actually already staying with Simon, Simon the Tanner. Simon the Tanner was a Jewish guy who worked with animal skins and so from a Jewish perspective would have been considered uh, outcast. And so Peter has already started to make some steps toward where God wants him to go and that's often the case too, isn't it? We can have every expectation that while Peter was staying with Simon he was thinking about animals, he was in Joppa, it was a port city, it's a lovely city, Tel Aviv. Uh, today, he probably would have looked out to the ocean and seen the sailing ships approaching the port or leaving the port, perhaps the fishing boats out there. And so his vision is a kind of combination of these things. It's, uh, it's interesting to reflect on how God uses uh, what we've seen, what we've experienced and brings them together. And he certainly does that in Peter's vision. We do know that Peter's vision didn't make a whole lot of sense to him at first. It tells us in both verse 19 and verse 17 before that. But Peter was kind of scratching his head wondering what was this vision about and that would become clear to him in a matter of time. We're told in the passage the next day when Peter started out with them sorry the next day Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived at Caesarea. Let me just say, that was a big day. They did a lot of walking that day. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. John Stott actually made a very interesting observation on this passage and said whether... Consciously or unconsciously, Peter just now repudiated both the extreme and opposite attitudes which human beings have sometimes adopted towards one another. He'd come to see that it was entirely inappropriate either to worship somebody as a divine being or reject somebody as unclean. Peter refused to be treated by Cornelius as a god And he refused to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. It's an interesting observation. In verse 27, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me, that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. May I ask why you sent for me? And Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. Now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All of the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard this message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptised with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. What a great story that is of Peter recounting the gospel, the core elements of the gospel and as people accept Christ the Spirit just being poured out upon them in the same manner as it had been on the day of Pentecost and continues to be through to this very day. One of the things I'd really like to do if I had the opportunity would be to sit down with Peter and talk with him about how it was that he moved from here as a a fisherman, a Jew who would have had quite a A negative attitude towards Gentiles to this place over here where he stated boldly in that passage I now realize that God doesn't show favoritism. I'd love to talk to him about you know the theological process what was it that God showed you but then how did you process it personally and it's important I think to kind of think of it from both of those directions because one of the observations that I make and have made is this you know, sometimes we can process things theologically, we can come up with the right answers, but they don't always transform us personally. They don't always change the way we think. That's the process the scripture talks about called sanctification. And sometimes that takes a while. I ask this question because sometimes I reckon accepting a proposition. Uh, that God or accepting the proposition that God can and does accept all others without prejudice is actually sometimes easier than accepting all others without prejudice ourselves. Just a week or so ago while I was uh, on leave, it's probably three weeks or so ago now, I was out shopping one day with Diana in a grocery store and uh, doing the dutiful husband thing, you know, just carrying the bags while she popped the oranges in and the potatoes. She went to get some apples and there was a a family from another culture uh, to ours, probably from somewhere around the Middle East kind of area, who were also getting apples, and the the father was collecting up the apples in the bags, carefully selecting them, and his children were doing the same. I don't think they were meant to be doing the same. And, you know, I was watching them. They were putting their hands all over the apples. It's really interesting how easily we become COVID police, isn't it? I was thinking, don't touch those things, you know. We're supposed to wash our hands before we come in here. And then uh, when the father had finished collecting up his selection of apples, he unceremoniously took the bags of apples that his children had and dumped them back into the bins. Now for me, who had picked apples and packed apples for a time, that was sacrilegious. You know, bruising them, banging them, touching them, all this kind of stuff. But there was something else that rose up within me too in that moment. I looked at those people, I looked at their skin colour and I thought, yeah, right, typical. And then in that moment it was as though God spoke to me and said, where did that come from? I tell you this story with some embarrassment because I'm not proud of the fact that it did come and and that I looked upon the colour of their skin as a measure of judgement. I've worked very, very hard over the years to try and be a person that will treat all others equally both in work context, in recreational context, in a personal environment. I've tried to live out the reality uh, that we see here in Acts chapter 10 but there's something inside me still, a prejudice that rose up in that moment that I had probably not recognised, something in my subconscious, something that I'm not proud of, something that I was convicted about, something I needed to deal about something that I reckon a lot of us actually have because I suspect that prejudice is amongst one of the last parts of our character to be sanctified and it can sit down there in the midst of our uh, being and cogitate away and we're not even aware of it until that sort of pops out in one of those moments. It's something that can sit deeply in our psyche, more deeply than we're prepared to admit. And it's possibly, as I say, amongst one of the more difficult areas to sanctify properly in our lives. It's an area that God's light needs to be shone on though. And I invite you even in this space just to think about that. You know, have you ever been in that kind of a place? I've kind of put myself out there a bit this morning by even telling you that story. I'm not proud of it. I'm, uh, I'm ashamed that I even thought like that but it was there and I wonder whether it happens you know uh, whether it's race or the way I treat someone of the opposite sex or somebody who's older than I am or younger than I am you know there's prejudices that we hold on to they're real aren't they And they inform us. We talk about, uh, you know, sometimes they're born from our experiences. We've had experience with someone of this age or this this nationality, and so that informs us, uh, you know, how that goes. Um, Old people are always grumpy, aren't they? Or um, you've got issues with men. Well, men are always like that, or um, people from that country always behave in that way. Whatever the stereotype or the prejudice might be. Uh, experience can and experience does inform us but sometimes that lurks in the darkest recesses of our soul silently informing our attitudes but we don't question it and we don't let the light of the gospel shine on that and that's what must have happened to Peter the light of the gospel shone so brightly into his thinking that it transformed his thinking and that's what we need isn't it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 14 to 16 Paul reflected on the love of Christ uh, expressed in the fact that Christ died for all people and Paul said these words from now on we regard nobody from a worldly point of view even though we once regarded Christ in this way now we no longer do so and what this means practically speaking is we no longer look at people in the way we used to do we no longer use that worldly lens that we applied As Christians, we are called to look at people quite differently, not sometimes in the manner in which the unregenerate parts of our heart might want us to do. Falling into the trap of uh, judging others or being prejudicial towards other people, making judgments on the basis of their age or their sex or the kind of clothes they wear or their gender or whatever it might be, uh, actually. Uh, perverts the power of the gospel it effectively reduces the power of the atonement of Christ it takes away the power of what God has done it undermines faithful preaching and it reduces our capacity to uh, share the gospel with people of all nations uh, all types of people even to put simply, to hold on to prejudice on the basis of age or sex or race or whatever it might be makes it impossible to rightly live or present the gospel of Christ. That's a staggeringly significant statement. When I was in my twenties, I had an experience that I've never forgotten. I had a friend who was an officer at a youth training facility. A, uh, facility that, well, basically was a prison for young men between, say, 16, 21 years of age who'd gone far enough through the, the system to make incarceration the next logical step in their criminal recidivism. Some of them, uh, look, some of them probably done okay in life, some of them may not have. Uh, but it was a, look, it was a weird experience, let me tell you, a very strange experience going through, behind the lock gates, and uh, And interacting with these guys who were basically my age, I was actually there to help them with some fitness training back in the days when I could run uh, run reasonably fast and uh, We trained them over a period of some months um, and then rather curiously, on one occasion, they went out on an excursion they were they 'd made up a football team actually, and uh, they they were fit so much so that three or four of them decided to do a runner and yeah basically didn't escape and ran and I thought oh my maybe I'm a little bit complicit in this am I guilty of facilitating their escape because I helped train them uh, and help them reach a high level of fitness this particular day we were inside the facility and my friend said to me oh we'll stay and have lunch and then he just cut me loose he said oh you go off over there you know get some lunch from the lineup you take the tray up and then just go and sit with these guys well I've got to tell you you now my life up to that point had been very sheltered and here I was with these guys whose lives were just so totally different to mine and I didn't know what to say when I was with my mate I kind of got a bit of an idea and when I had a role but now in a social context what do you talk about what do you talk about in terms of what your life is like and what my life is like Uh, what's acceptable what's not acceptable it was an out there experience for me and it was dead easy to pigeonhole them to make assumptions about them to look at them and judge them and in some ways just want to get out of there as fast as I could and I had to recognise that even there there were some deep prejudices that I carried into that place and if I was going to minister effectively to them I needed to deal with those things now that's an extreme example, that's an example where there's significant, uh, significant stuff going on. We come up against this stuff all the time and one of the messages of this passage is that the gospel does not allow prejudice to remain. Peter came to a whole new revelation of what God uh, thought of in terms of other people In fact, the reality that Christ died for us all, the smelly, the unattractive, the high class, the low class, every colour of the spectrum, those enjoying their liberty, those who were not enjoying their liberty, as was the case with those guys, uh, drives us to no longer regard people as we once did. Those annoying Yui ads, I don't know if you're familiar with these, you know, the the ads that say, uh, here's Frank. Make some assumptions about Frank. Of course we all make assumptions about Frank and then they criticise us for making assumptions about Frank. The reality is we make assumptions about people all the time, don't we? But we have to recognise as followers of Christ, if sin which expresses itself as prejudice is not confronted, it grows and it grows, festering into something hideous and ugly and it needs to be confronted with the truth of the Gospel. It needs to be exposed to the light of the Spirit of God and dealt with. There are times when we need to put aside external illusions informed by the flesh and allow the Holy Spirit to readjust our eyes to help us to see the people that we're dealing with, the people we're interacting with, the people we're living with, our neighbours through the eyes of Christ because uh, that's the eyes that we need to use. We need to think about others in the same manner that Jesus does. That's what it means to truly live in relationship with other people. Peter had this vision and recognised that God does not show favouritism and neither should we. Let's pray and ask for God's help because this is an area I think most of us need uh, need to address in some way or another. Gracious God, who made every man, woman and child who lives on the face of the earth today, who has ever lived and who will ever live, God who created each one uniquely in your image and knew every one of us before we were born, we come to you and pray that you will help us to see others through the eyes of Christ. Lord, we thank you for salvation that has been uh, released from the enclave of Jewish, uh, the Jewish religion out beyond that Jesus Christ died for all. We thank you that we as Gentiles are recipients of your grace and your goodness. We thank you for the vision that you gave people like Peter and others who have come after him. Uh, but we recognise, Lord, that throughout history and we have to own the fact that even through the history of the church, There have been times where we have put boundaries around the gospel on on the basis of race or ethnicity. We have put boundaries around the gospel on the basis of sex, of gender. And Lord God, we are sorry that in doing that we have have corrupted your gospel. Lord, we recognise the challenge associated with putting off the old self and of putting worldliness to death, we acknowledge how easily sin rises up within us, how we fall into the trap of finding our own value by devaluing others, how we emphasise differences, harbour prejudices, how we nurture discrimination, but we pray today that you'll give us the grace to see every other person through the eyes of Christ, to see them the way you see them, to treat them the way that you treat them, and to afford them the dignity that you afford them. Lord, convict us, expose by your light and love, those parts of our heart that need to be regenerated. Lord, let us not hide our attitudes behind doctrine or theology that may be a corruption of what your word reveals to us, but experience the true love and grace that is mediated through your word by your spirit today to renew us, to refresh us and to release us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.